0: Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation for those who own, manage, or protect intellectual property. Hello, I'm Parmen Lally, and I'm a partner and patent attorney at Appleyard Lees. I'm joined on this episode of the podcast by trainee patent attorney, Deborah Dawn. Hi. We are excited to welcome to the podcast special guests, Joseph Bentley, founder and managing director of med tech startup, Act Medical, and the business's head of product, Emma Priestley. On this episode of the podcast, we discuss how ACT Medical's prize-winning innovation aims to revolutionize the standard of care for penetrative trauma, such as stab wounds. We also look at the challenges ACT Medical has faced as a startup and the role intellectual property has played in the growth of the business. So let's start off with you, Joseph. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your backgrounds and how ACT Medical came about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you very much for having us. So I studied product design and technology at Loughborough and sadly while I was at university two of my friends were stabbed in London. Now thankfully both of them survived but it really forced me to look at knife crime and indeed penetrating injuries uh, at a lot closer detail and really work out sort of why people continue to die from these horrific injuries. So with a particular focus on hemorrhage management and we can talk a little bit more a bit later about where we sort of went with that idea. But using my sort of background as a product designer and some experience working for a innovative medtech company as well, we looked to use that those sort of design skills to to try and come up with a, a better solution to stop people from bleeding to death so readily.
2: Could you tell us a bit more about your background as well, Emma? So I'm Emma. I'm the
3: head of product at medical. I did a degree in mechanical engineering. And as part of that degree, I did a placement year where I had the pleasure of working with Joe during that year. I then joined at, at medical in August 2022 as the head of products and been working together
2: ever since. So tell us about your product. What is it that you do and what did you invent? So we've developed a product for managing penetrative trauma. So
3: if a person is bleeding out from a knife or gunshot wound, our device is to be put in place by first responders and expands to apply direct internal pressure to manage that bleeding. And we're specifically looking to target junctional regions which see
2: 20% of deaths from this sort of trauma. When did you realise that there's actually a real problem that no one has come up with a solution for yet? So when did you realize that you had something there, I guess?
1: Well, it's really interesting. I mean, bleeding to death seems to be, or, or any kind of bleeding, seems to be one of these problems that humans have faced forever. And a lot of amazing innovation has happened in the past to to try and stem or stop that bleeding completely. And we really have some very, very good solutions for anything that isn't the absolute worst case. The problem being, though, is that in those worst cases, people bleed out incredibly quickly. It it can be literally minutes until you, and you only have to lose about forty percent of your blood volume to to sadly die from bleeding. So, it's definitely a problem that that we were looking at, and and having a look at sort of current solutions and what people sort of look to do. I guess we. we started from the advice that you or I have been given whereby if you've ever sort of received a penetrating injury and that object is still sort of in the wound it's to never remove that object and that's because that object in question is applying a lot of internal direct pressure and sort of acting as a a plug or a tamponade in that space and so the innovation that we've built is is based off that idea that you know if you're never supposed to take that weapon out what happens in the cases where you have multiple stab wound injuries or in the very very common cases where an assailant takes out the weapon so as soon as we sort of looked at that problem it became very obvious that paramedics have a really tough time at stopping bleeding and it was only when actually sort of discussing this project with representatives of sort of ambulance trusts in and around London and Leicestershire, where this project was sort of conducted, that a real unmet need was identified in those deep, narrow, penetrating wounds, because they're really, really difficult to sort of treat with current methods.
2: So is your product aimed at those paramedics then, or is it someone else?
1: at the moment are very much aiming our device at trained first responders. So ambulance crews, paramedics, but also police officers and potentially representatives of the military as well. But the project first started really considering a defibrillator model. So looking at creating a solution that was super simple and could be in locations of sort of high risk, you know, street corners, nightclubs, but have a technology that allowed the real first responders, the sort of people first on the scene to be able to deliver that life-saving aid uh, a lot more effectively and, and faster and with a less sort of high training burden than current technologies.
2: Has your product developed over time then? I think you touched on sort of there being a first iteration just now, but what are you up to now? What Where are you at? Is it is it different to where you first started? And did you foresee that?
3: Yeah, so the product first started at university when Joe developed a more style of device, an actuator and a tamponade as two separate components. So a reusable actuator and then a single use tamponade. Since establishing at Medical, we really went back to the ground, building it from the ground up and speaking to the end users. Obviously, in this sort of device where speed of use is critical to managing that bleeding, usability is the most important thing for this device. And therefore, getting the perspectives of a range of different end users has really helped us to redefine The technology. So it's now smaller, it's purely single use, it's lower cost, it's lightweight, and it's a purely mechanical system that doesn't use any electronics to apply that pressure now. So we've really simplified it in a way, but refined it for the needs of the end users.
0: Since you've moved away from a device that includes sort of electronic components to one that just has uh, is just purely mechanical. I guess that also brings down the cost of actually, you know, producing the product. Was that a consideration as well, or was it purely on the sort of the feedback that you've received from people who would be using the device?
3: The feedback we received was also in terms of having it as low cost as possible and being able to have put it everywhere so that it's in the right place to be used when it's needed. So that unit cost is a really important factor, as well as the ease of the regulatory pathway in terms of having a purely mechanical system also reduces the timelines and development costs associated with that.
0: We've been working together for a few years now. Uh, But when did you actually first start thinking about intellectual property, Joseph? And what led you to Apple Yard Lee's?
1: So I think IP was probably always at the back of our mind and sometimes very readily in the foreground. I think one of the things when you're starting a business is that trusting the advice of others becomes very, very important, especially because so many have been in that position already and, and want to help. And so personal recommendations are incredibly valuable to us so we we got connected to appiadlees through a fellow founder also working on sort of medical devices and and biosensing so it was a uh, a perfect kind of match and and after a introduction we were really happy to kind of continue that because we we'd seen and heard from people that we trusted that appiadlees were sort of really respectable and i also think One of the main reasons why I wanted to work with Palminder and Deborah was because they (laughs) were so good at answering all of our questions that we threw at them almost from day one and continue to throw at them because it's such a hard thing to wrap your head around. And that, yeah, really sold it for me. I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that, Emma.
3: Well, I joined um, when we're already working together, but yeah, it's been a pleasure to work with you both, being able to ask us open questions and and to have you answer them and and give us advice as well as helping do the actual work for us. Yeah, it's been invaluable.
0: So you were at university when you you first came up with this uh, idea. Did you get any advice from the university itself or anyone in their sort of technology transfer department at all to help you and work out what to do?
1: So helpfully, a number of students and alumni from my course had sort of met this challenge before. And so the university were very good and actually established a kind of IP lecture series, that uh, an introduction to which was kind of given to all of us students in the year group sort of, as we started the project of just, you know, you're, you're going to be tackling hopefully a problem that's really important that, that other people want to solve as well. So just be mindful about how much you sort of talk about that in case you do come up with something that, that yes, can, can add real value. So that was sort of in our in all of our minds as we addressed this project but following that as soon as we sort of sat back and went is there something that could be protected here is there an inventive step that could add value to the the sort of artwork and the current knowledge of how to stop bleeding i then solicited advice from the university's sort of knowledge transfer office and Loughborough is fantastic because it's got an excellent sort of student incubator for for startups and and businesses in the local area. And they really prioritize sort of giving opportunities to recent graduates and current students to learn about business and IP and what you should be thinking about before you start turning something into a venture or, or creating value that other people want.
0: That's really good to hear there was not as much emphasis on i p when I was at university. It was briefly touched on in my course, so it's it's great to see that you know more universities are encouraging entrepreneurship but also providing the support for their students as well. so that's really great. We have talked a little bit about the patent side of things, um but obviously you came up with a name for your business as well. How did that come about?
1: So the business got its name. ACT Medical, which was kind of, if we look back at the project that I did at university, I named the device REACT, which stands for Rapid Emergency Actuating Tamponade, which <laughs> apparently you can't get IP protection on acronyms, which was kind of helpful for us because we we do not own that trademark. And so had to definitely drop the kind of REACT branding as we moved into commercialization, which is a sort of really important thing that that we should talk about a bit later as well. But in doing so, we decided that a portion of that sort of message, I guess, to to react to the problems with knife crime and to actually administer that first aid response as soon as possible was actually in the action of people walking past. And even if that's action for, you know, getting on your hands and knees and and trying to stop the bleeding yourselves, but even if it's just calling an ambulance or just making the emergency services aware, that was definitely the message that we wanted to to kind of push. I think as a secondary factor to that as well, it was a bit of a comment on how our skill sets and mine particularly, it is not focused and is not, the correct one for dealing with the incredible social political problem that knife crime is. But what we can do is hopefully have a go at using our design and engineering capabilities to look to develop a new piece of technology that can hopefully aid the true heroes, the paramedics, the people that are responding to these scenes in their acts to stop bleeding. And Within that, I feel like the message of us acting in any way that we could to to try and do something to fight against knife crime was really important. So, yeah, that's what led to Act Medical as our sort of business name.
0: I love that. That's such a lovely story. And it's it's really nice to hear a story behind a business name and also to hear about the challenge, you know, that you did come across an issue when you were trying to protect the name using using trademarks and that you've, you know, had to pivot around that, which is really, really interesting. And it's it's nice to hear about a name that has a meaning and it's not just some random set of letters thrown together or or a strange word. So We know that it can be expensive to protect innovation and that businesses of all shapes and sizes need to be able to decide how much they're going to spend on IP. But we know that from working with many startups that this is even more of a concern for businesses that are relying on fundraising, especially in the early stages. So why did you decide to allocate a budget for IP and has building an IP portfolio been helpful for the business? For example, has it helped you to attract more investment?
1: I think it's a hard thing to decide where that budget is going to go as you start a business. And I think it's, (laughs) it's more important because you have so little budget and IP is such a sort of large, I guess, potential pot that you can spend a lot of money on. And the thing that we're quickly learning is that holding IP and sort of advancing IP becomes more and more expensive as you do it again, you know, it's, it's sort of very expensive thing to do. However, I think it was for our business, especially absolutely necessary for us to protect our IP. I think it's part of a, a wider conversation around raising investment and, and kind of, giving confidence to other people that you are going to do everything you can to protect their capital that, that you're taking and applying to hopefully solve this problem. And it is a real confidence boost to investors to see that you have a consideration for how important that intellectual property is, but also have a plan for it. Because I think it's very easy to say, okay, well, that's a piece of innovation and something that we're going to protect, but it could not be commercially relevant at all. And so that is a bit wasted money in that aspect, just to get a nice piece of paper with some inventor names on it. But whether that's actually going to add value to to you as a business and to your investors' capital, that's really the considerations that need to be made. But in short, I definitely think it's it was incredibly valuable for us having patent protection at the start. And I think one of the reasons why that was so clear was because we were very fortunate to have a a large amount of media attention around the project. And so that really brought kind of light on the innovation in an early stage, which is quite a dangerous thing if you're underprepared and if you don't have the sort of capital to be able to to you know wipe away the the dirt after all of that because your idea is kind of everywhere straight away and everyone has the opportunity to to dig into that and and sort of protect that themselves so yeah it was massively important for us and we've been very fortunate that we made that decision early on because it would have been very unlikely that following all of that media attention we would have been able to get any kind of intellectual property protection on our ideas.
0: I remember when you first came to us and I did the usual thing that I do when a, a new client comes along and you know stick your name into google and see what comes up. You know we saw the bbc news articles and immediately I you know panicked and thought oh no you know they've already told people about their idea and you know that's a a classic mistake that you can make in the IP world, but obviously you'd already started on the process. But before we get into the sort of patent details, what was all of that media attention?
1: So we were extremely fortunate just at the end of the project that Loughborough really wanted to, to post about our project and to kind of put across their networks that the work that I had done as part of that. So we put out a, a video that received... An incredible amount of media attention it kind of happened overnight which was pretty mental and then suddenly there were posts all over bbc news of of this video so that was the sort of first wave but then another thing that most designers do at university if they've done a sort of large final year project is put it up for something called a james dyson award so this is a competition that as I say, most sort of young, engineering, innovatory people kind of apply for, because it really captures that spirit. And it's awarded sort of every year. There are normally two prizes, so a normal James Dyson Award, a kind of global award, and in recent years, a sustainability award that Sir Dyson sort of hand-selects a particular project of that year that he thinks deserves some potential funding so i think it's 30,000 pounds to to actually kind of go out and try that idea the intention behind that is that you know funding for early ventures especially just out of university and you've barely got an idea that's been tested is so hard to come by especially these days but we were one of the Incredibly fortunate people to, to go through into that competition and were the winners of the UK James Dyson Award first, which, which led to a, a lot of other media attention, which was fantastic, but then was hand-selected to be the first ever medical James Dyson Award in September of 2021, which was absolutely incredible that was fantastic and really gave a, the the platform and the financial means that allowed us to actually explore whether this idea could be reality
2: so on the patent process sort of um you you've touched on a bit about how you thought about protecting your innovation and that you've sort of went for it kind of early what was it like actually going through the patent process
1: that first process it seemed quite magical in a way, how sort of being able to, to pick an idea apart and find out and, and sort of pull it down into its its component features and see really what what makes that idea special. And, and also the, this kind of strategy piece of making sure that the correct things and the correct sort of breadth of protection is applied if you want to create a family of patents was a really important thing that I know we we spoke a lot about when we were doing it. So yeah, it was <laughs> it's it's a steep learning curve for sure.
3: For me joining, I hadn't even had the lectures that Joe talked about at university. Like we hadn't been taught anything about IP and the patent process. And I think joining as kind of head of product, you assume that maybe you should know these things. And initially, I think I just didn't ask enough questions of you guys, and it did seem like a slightly overwhelming process but then realizing that you guys are obviously here to answer those questions and support us through this journey and that we can ask any silly question and and you'll clearly explain it and give us answer that has really helped the process like well obviously getting your input because you're the experts and, and we don't have to be the experts and everything. And that's why we have such a good support network of yourselves for this and then other partners for other things. And I think just learning that it's okay to ask for clarification and ask any question that comes to mind just to kind of ease that process. And that's really helped now to get a better understanding of the timelines and and managing the various patterns we've got going on.
0: There is so much to take in, and it takes us a long time to train and fully qualify as patent attorneys. So I really, I think it's amazing when you know you go from a standing start to to you know managing a portfolio, you know liaising with patent attorneys and trying to get to grips with you know everything we're telling you and all of the jargon and deadlines and so on. So I think it, it's great that you you know get up to speed. But asking questions is always a good thing. We we like being able to tell you uh, what <laughs> things mean. <laughs> um, we've learned a bunch of definitions, so <laughs> you can get to to use them and say them. But it, it works so much better between patent attorneys and clients if you know we, we have that sort of open relationship where you can just come and ask us questions, and you're not worried about sounding silly or how much that's going to cost or, or anything like that is there anything in particular that
2: you now think if i'd only known that i don't know a year ago two years ago that would have made my life so much easier
1: i think for me the the parent and child kind of feature and the flow down of that when selecting what what claims are most important is a is a really kind of key step i guess when when observing and and reading through and sort of preparing a patent application that that's something that yeah, only really sort of recently clicked to me when, when we've been doing the work around kind of consolidating and sort of making sure that the right things are protected. And in the cases where there's sort of knock on effect and, and sort of child features that leads on from it, it. Yeah, if I had an appreciation for that earlier, that would have been really sort of, it would have speeded up my understanding of it all a lot more.
3: Yeah, I agree actually. Understanding that claim one is like the big building block, and then all the claims build upon that. Um, it seems like there's a whole list of claims, but understanding that they're all kind of build upon each other and slowly like funnel the um the pattern down to be more and more specific.
2: So I think you've touched on this earlier, sort of this sort of balance between like telling people what you're doing and keeping it secret enough to actually be able to protect it how 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 did you how did you manage that in practice because i imagine it must be really difficult you have to tell investors what you're doing to sort of start up your company you're doing something really cool so you as you said you want to raise awareness of sort of knife crime and all of these things you do want to tell people but at the same time it's like patent attorneys telling you you cannot tell anyone because otherwise you're not going to get a granted patent for this so how do you keep the things that you know are going to go in the patent applications secret and still sort of tell people just enough to keep them interested and get investment and all that sort of thing.
1: Well, I think it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult, especially because, I mean, we were certainly helped by the fact that we had a pretty early patent that was quite broad, and that gave us, I think it's quite a good power to be able to say, you know, don't worry, we've got a sort of pending patent on whatever I'm going to tell you. The problem with that, though, is that the idea, especially for us as well, can quickly evolves and becomes quite a different thing and at that point you kind of move further and further away from the protection that you've you've built yourself and it becomes riskier and riskier to start telling other people because at that point it could be a completely different thing and you could need to create a a new pattern to protect it so using non-disclosure agreements is is something that is always advisable when you want to sort of tell people about things that are commercially sensitive in any way but even those only go so far so you've really got to be careful with how you sort of how much of the secret source you do tell to people because it's yeah it's something that you can't sort of take away from the public domain once it's out there I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that as well Emma
3: No, I think it's just a really tricky thing um, to juggle, obviously, as head of products. I'm very excited about telling people about the products and just giving more kind of description of what it's doing as opposed to how we're doing it has been a bit of a way around that.
0: So you've worked with third party organizations to help with product development, particularly at the early stage of the business. Startups and SMEs often contract out work, hire temporary contractors and interns and so on. So this is a completely normal thing to do. But there are legal considerations when doing this. How has it been to sort of get your head around that? And have there been any challenges?
1: It's very important to have attorneys read through the agreements that you're making with third parties developers or or contractors or anything. I think there is a lot of language that's often used that when you first kind of read it, you don't really know what that means and is now when you read it a bit of a a red flag and a warning sign. So there's there's a lot to look out for. And I think as soon as when you're first starting, you just don't know what to look out for. The development partners that we've worked with have been very good around IP. They recognize that as an early stage company, you really need to have ownership of that, which I think as well we benefited massively because our university really recognized how important that was as well, so we were able to start our venture having one hundred percent ownership of of the thing that we want to commercialize, which unfortunately, many early ventures don't have that, and that can lead to problems downstream of people not having enough ownership and not being able to convince other investors later down the line that there's not a risk here when it comes to the business owning its intellectual property. But it's definitely something that you need to be very careful about when you're reading that fine print as to what's actually happening with these ideas that we're generating. And that's not just in contractors or people that are kind of working for you i think that's also really important with kind of grant giving or competitions that those kind of organizations as well so working out what they want in return and quite a lot of the time one of the only things early ventures have is ip that's the kind of only thing they can give so it yeah it's really a bit of a minefield but working with attorneys and and legal advisors to to review those documents is a fantastic protection mechanism that is definitely advised.
0: I think even I struggle with lots of legal commercial contracts, you know, having some knowledge of of patent and trademark work doesn't necessarily translate to being able to read, you know, commercial agreements and things like that. So I I would definitely consult someone, you know, to help me get around it. So I think yeah, it makes sense for startups and new businesses to get in touch with a lawyer and and help get advice on on what those terms mean before signing something, because then then it's just too late and you don't know what you signed away. On the subject of
2: grants, you've also made use of the IP-specific grants that actually exist. They're called the IP Audit Plus Scheme and the IP Access Grant. Could you tell us how you've used those and how they were useful to your business?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's fantastic that there are these grants out there because it shows that the sort of UK IP office recognizes how kind of important that is to an early stage startup to really understand what property that they have and ensure that their ideas get protected. So for us, we use that scheme to really have a look at what what the changes in our IP need to be when we sort of looked to extending it territorially. So I mentioned that we first applied while the project was sort of still going back at university. We applied originally for a GB patent application, but one of the fantastic mechanisms that I had absolutely no idea existed at that point is obviously the PCT and this wider sort of territorial protection that you can apply for while your patent goes through its kind of early stages before you have to kind of go into national territories and everything gets a lot more expensive. But the PCT and the the sort of IP Audit Plus schemes and the follow-on IP Access grant allowed us to really kind of dig into our GB application and work out how it had changed or sort of how the idea had developed and, and spend a lot of time sort of carefully editing and adjusting the claims to make sure that we were covering ourselves for when we went and did that that sort of international coverage later on. So doing that in a in a cost-effective way as well, because we had at this point only the money that Sir Dyson had given us and a couple of additional little grants. So a really, really important step that would have been very challenging for us to do any other way was was achieved through these schemes so I definitely suggest anyone in a similar position to that makes full effect and and has a look at those schemes.
2: You've mentioned that you access them via Innovate UK so did you find out about about them via your advisor there is that how it worked for you?
1: Yes so we were part of the Innovate UK Edge program, which is a fantastic kind of program for people in the early stage that are just kind of looking to considering the various mechanisms for getting financing. And they're very focused on sort of providing a business or early stage venture with an advisor that has an awareness of what innovation and early stage funding is available, but also what financing is sort of available at the next step, what those kind of bridges can be, but also where the, where the gaps are, you know, where the big stages where there aren't any bridges, they can kind of make you aware of that and help you plan to to sort of find ways to navigate and cross those uh, sort of valleys. So yeah, we first found out about these schemes from our Innovate UK edge advisor and he was sort of very adamant that we should look at these and and for very good reason Uh, it allowed us to protect and and tune our IP so that we had maximum protection for when we entered that territorial phase at a time where we did not have the internal capital to do it any other way.
0: For the benefit of any listeners who are interested in the IP audit scheme you can use the grant for a variety of things Um, so Joseph has mentioned, you know, using it to help determine whether the original patent application still suited the business and getting ready to file further patent applications. But you can use them for all sorts of things, such as pre-patent filing searches, trademark advice, advice on what aspects of your innovation could be protected using IP And if you're a spin out or you've pivoted your business, you can use the grants to conduct an analysis of your existing IP IP portfolio to see whether it still adequately covers your innovation and your business goals. And if you want to know more about the scheme and how it works, just drop us an email after you finish listening to this episode. So Joseph, Emma, we're coming to the end of this episode and I want to just briefly turn back to the start of your journey. Was starting and running a company something you imagined you'd be doing after your degrees? And where do you go for advice on running a business and doing all of the business side of things, like hiring people and dealing with accountants and you know, finding you know places to run your business and, and so on, while still carrying on developing the actual product?
1: I'd never imagined that I'd be running a company so soon after leaving university and I think one of the best things that actually enabled me to to do that and consider that was the university's accelerator program. But that's not just a uh, thing that you have to do if you've gone to university. I think these accelerator programs are really accessible f- for anyone who wants to start a business. And I th- would strongly advise anyone to apply for them because they do give you those foundational points of contact that you can go and ask questions and I definitely advise that you ask as many questions as you can and never stop asking them because it's certainly a thing that I see where you kind of You spend a lot of time trying to gather as much information and talk to as many people as you can. And then you kind of go, okay, cool. I've I've got all of that. That's done. I can just kind of progress now. But then you find more challenges and then you go onto another hurdle that you need to try and connect with someone to help you solve that. So keep asking questions and keep looking for people that can help you solve those problems. Because generally, people really want to help, especially when they can recognize that the problem that you're trying to solve is so great and so important but also is just kind of uh, it feels really good to help people so people are very very supportive the one kind of caveat to that is that you've got to make sure that you also pay that back so if, if someone supported you and teaching you how to kind of come up with those solutions and, and sort of solve those tiny challenges because it's always the small challenges that get most in your way you know how, how do you how do you file that end of your account you know how, how do I type in my government gateway code where's that gone it's a personal one there's a business one it's, it's those little challenges that can really kind of get in your way and so if you do start a business and if you do go through those steps, make sure that you then turn around and are willing to to support other people in their journeys as well.
0: Did you imagine you'd be working at a startup after after leaving university?
3: I initially had another job lined up and a year of traveling and then he offered the position working at this company I've always wanted to work within the medical device sector and being able to work at such a small company where you could have a much larger impact did seem really appealing I guess I hadn't actually I hadn't ever really thought about working at a startup before to be honest and it wasn't until joining it that you get to see the highs and lows of, of being within that environment and I think like a key part of having such a small internal team is having such a broad network of people externally that we've connected to. So whether that's going to conferences and connecting with clinicians or being part of just kind of entrepreneur networking events and Accelerate programs where you get to meet other people, just having that kind of network of people you can turn to and ask questions of has really helped in this journey and help this be a really positive experience time yeah I never thought I would particularly be a startup straight out of university but I can recommend it more if you're looking to really expand your skill set you'll get thrown in at the deep end and you just gotta hope you can swim
1: we obviously need to caveat that there are so many challenges that we've still yet to solve so we can help as much as we can but I think everyone needs to kind of work out their own journey and their own path for whatever problem it is that they're trying to solve. But anything anyone else can do to support you, yeah, ask questions because people will want to help.
2: So I think final question, what will your one piece of advice be for other innovative startups and founders?
1: I think for me, definitely ask questions. And there's no question that's stupid. Definitely pick your time, though. If you if you're going to someone that you really want to get investment from, or really want to sort of, yeah, want to impress, maybe maybe ask a a couple of people beforehand those questions. So you you've got at least a foundation of what that answer is going to be. But definitely don't be afraid of reaching out and asking for help because it is the only way that you'll move forward.
2: Do you have any piece of advice, Emma? I think
3: my mind would link back to just really establishing that network of connections. So you never know um, when you could help someone or they could help you. So just kind of discussing what your challenges or what you're up to currently with people and being open about what potential advice you could offer and what support that you're looking for just really helps highlight those opportunities Like we've, we've built up a real web of people we can now turn to. And that's because having open, honest conversations and, and getting that support.
0: Interestingly, I I think I have the same advice for Deborah and other trainee patent attorneys. You know, you have to keep asking questions and you have to build up your network, you know, people that you, you know, you can ask questions of in and outside of your own organization. So many parallels between the two sort of worlds as well. Thank you so much Joseph and Emma for joining us on this episode of the podcast. It has been a real pleasure talking to you and learning more about the ACT medical journey so far and I look forward to many more you know press releases and exciting things in the news in the near future.
1: Thank you both. No thank you. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Yeah thank you. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialists to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at appleyardlees or email us at ip at